Okay, what do pole dancing, AI chatbots, and diet culture all have in common? They're all topics explored on Embodied, the award-winning weekly podcast from UNC, North Carolina Public Radio. Each week on Embodied, acclaimed journalist Anita Rao tackles difficult conversations around the taboos of sex and health and relationships to answer important questions about our bodies and our society. Just like reimagining love, nothing is off limits from the history of hookup culture to an exploration of how mental health affects our relationships. So go ahead and follow Embodied wherever you get your podcasts and make sure that you tell them I sent you. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Hi, Reimagining Love listeners. I have a special announcement. The brand new Reimagining Love Workbook, Volume 1, is now on sale on my website. You know, when I set out to create this podcast, I knew that I wanted the lessons and the insights from the episodes to feel tangible and immediately applicable to you and your relationships. As a couples therapist, I've seen time and time again that improving your relationships and your relationship with yourself takes effort and intention and time. We need strategies, we need practices that we can play with, as well as structured spaces to reflect And sometimes the best way to do this is to put pen to paper, to see what's going on inside of our minds and inside of our hearts. So I decided that I would create companion worksheets for all of the solo deep dive episodes of Reimagining Love. These worksheets contain tables to fill out, relational self-awareness questions to answer, and reflection exercises, all tied to the topic of the episode. And these worksheets have been available to listeners through my newsletter as the corresponding episodes have aired. And now I've updated all of them and we've compiled them into this downloadable, easy to use workbook so that you can conveniently access them all in one place. And at the end of the workbook, you're going to find a glossary of the therapeutic terms that I frequently use, as well as a list of all the podcast episodes thus far organized by topic in case you're seeking support in a particular area at a particular moment. So if you're ready to dive deeper into your relational self-awareness work, click the link in the show notes or head to dralexandrasolomoncom slash RL Workbook to purchase this amazing bundle of resources, which you can use individually or with your partner. Hi there. Thanks for tuning in to Reimagining Love. 
On today's episode, I am so thrilled to be joined by the visionary writer and poet, Cole Arthur Riley. She is the author of the New York Times bestseller, This Here Flesh, Spirituality, Liberation, and the Stories That Make Us. Her writing has been featured in The Atlantic, Guernica, and The Washington Post. Cole is also the creator and writer of Black Liturgies, a project that integrates spiritual practice with Black emotion, Black literature, and the Black body. I recently read Cole's book, This Here Flesh, and it moved me deeply, as you'll hear in this conversation. In fact, when I sat down to write a letter to our daughter, Courtney, on the morning of her high school graduation, which was also the day after this interview, I quoted This Here Flesh, not once, but twice. In this conversation, you'll hear Cole and I discuss some of the central themes of the book and Cole's work more broadly, including wonder, contemplation, creativity, disability, race, belonging, and more. Cole also had some beautiful things to share about her respect for the wisdom of children, and she reads one of her own childhood memories from a chapter in her book. I'm so glad that you're here to let this expansive conversation wash over you, and I know you're going to love hearing from Cole. Hi, Cole. Thank you so much for being here today. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to spend some time with you. I already got a little a little tearful before we even started because I'm just so excited about you and your work and giving the Reimagining Love listeners a chance to get to know you a little bit. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for reading. Okay. So when I am here with a guest on Reimagining Love, I love to start with this relational self-awareness question. Are you ready for the question? Sure. Paul, could you talk a little bit about a growing edge that you're currently working on or exploring in the context of one of your important relationships and what it's been teaching you lately? Yes. I am coming out of a visit, a week-long visit with some of my nieces and nephews ranging in ages from six years to one year old. Mm. And they, they came to Ithaca where I live to visit. And I have a lot of admiration for children. I have for some time. I think, you know, they have just a kind of mysterious wisdom to them and consider myself to be a fun aunt. But something about this visit, it was becoming clear that, you know, I was just kind of losing the maybe capacity or the willingness to submit to their kind of play, to submit to their world. And there was a lot of pretend. So one of the days I was in the backseat with a six-year-old and a five-year-old, two two nephews, and we were playing pretend. I was pretending to be an old woman who's lost her rings and just (laughs) doing it again and again and again. And there was this moment where I just looked at my husband and was like, I hate playing pretend, pretend specifically. Like, I don't think there's much I would hate more than playing pretend. And I don't know where the aversion came from, but they would have me do the same thing again and again and again. And it was really difficult for me. Since they've left, I've been asking myself the question of kind of what is this resistance to imagination 
the, the imagination that, that, that children can possess? What is the resistance to the contentment of a child, which allows this repetitive behavior, which allows them, you know, doing the same thing again and again, and still they're just as enamored with it as they were the first time. Every time is new. You know, when the old woman becomes a bear, every time it's it's new and wonderful to them. What What is that resistance in me that can't really meet that level of contentment, that can't really rise to meet that level of imagination? And I think there's a certain beauty to it that I want to explore more and maybe even do some reclaiming around. That was my first question is, did you love pretend play when you were little? Like, do you have memories of being able to do that and create entire worlds when you were little? Yes. I mean, I did. I was a very, I was an odd, I was an mm-hmm. odd child. Mm-hmm. You know, I was very into magic and, you know, mixing potions in my parents' basement with my sister. And I do consider myself somewhat of a storyteller at heart. And so it's interesting that something about the storyteller in me isn't translating into a kind of embodied pretend, an embodied play of that story. That, that as I've grown, maybe I've retained the storytelling and lost some of the like embodied practice. Yeah. It's so, I was struck as you were telling the story, like there's so much entitlement in them, in your nephews, like just get like feeling that permission to have auntie again and again, like there's so much voice and unapologetic, like you are here and this is what we want and need from you and want to create with you. You know, there's so much like permission. You must make a kind of safety with them that they can ask you again and again for the same thing. Yeah. I love thinking of it that way. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And there is a difference between telling a story and embodying a story. Yes. And embodying it in front of others. And there's a level of humility and vulnerability that requires to have a story play out in your body. And, you know, not all kids are like this, but I'm fortunate that my nieces and nephews are very free in their bodies still, um, even at six there's not much shame living in their bodies. There's not much humiliation or or fear of humiliation that, that I can see. So there's this like freedom and this that I want, you know, I want to want what I want to want that, you know, <laughs> and I want to be able to practice that in front of them and make myself strange and ugly and, you know, and, and beautiful. Yeah. And to be seen as you're doing yes. that. Let yeah. yourself be seen as you're doing that. Yes. Okay, so a really big takeaway from this also is for, not just for parents, but for all of us who have little people in our lives. Like, I think it's so easy when we feel, you know, because you're describing, like, there was almost like a kind of, I think you use the word resistance. And so what you are doing is becoming a student of your resistance. So rather than it being that children's play is silly, or these kids were bugging me, or they wanted the same thing over and over again, like, you're using it as a portal into yourself. And that is a huge invitation for all of us in relation to children who, where it's so easy, right? We have this whole cultural narrative where we do diminish the experiences of children and miss the opportunity to to study our own reactions that we're having. Exactly. Okay. Well, this segues us beautifully into, um, you know, I had emailed you and said, Cole, what do you think about reading a bit from your book? Because I, you know, I, as I was researching you and preparing and reading, you know, my, my interview script today is basically lines from your book 
with a question that just oftentimes the question is just like, okay, so say more about that. Like it just is, there's so much richness here, but I, I love that you are willing to read a bit um, to us in the story. The, the part that you have agreed to read is one of my favorite parts of the whole book. So I love that that was the one that you identified. And I, I would love for you to give Re- uh, Reimagining Love listeners a chance to hear your voice. Yes, I would love to. This is from chapter three of This Here Flesh, which is called Wonder. My first friend who was mine was a girl called Boo. Mine and that before her, the only friends I had, came to me by association with my sister, who was charming and popular enough to have friends left over to donate to me out of sympathy. This was enough for me then. Until the day Boo glided up to me at recess, pressed a spoon into my chest and said, let's go to the fields. And I went. Skipping so close behind her, I had to dodge the plastic coons bag she had wrapped around her wrist. When we got to the middle of the deserted field, she lifted the bag and tore it open with her teeth. A jar of chocolate icing fell to the earth. I picked something crusty off the spoon and we ate, legs crossed under us and knees touching, making shapes of the space between us. This is our ceremony, I said. Yes, a ceremony, Boo said, pinching the roots of her braids and whipping them over the icing in a circle. It began like that, knee to knee in an empty field, eating icing and clinking spoons. We began collecting seeds from helicopters fallen from trees. We'd grind them up and blow the dust into each other's hearts. Boo would cartwheel around me until the clouds whispered the secret of the day. They say you're an angel, and we laughed and bowed. They say you'll be a dancer, and we crossed our hearts. Our ceremonies ended with the whistle. Fake, because neither of us could actually whistle, but to us it was real. Until the day we had visitors, three of them standing over us with their hips popped, they called us weird and lame. They called us disgusting little babies. And the next day, Boo didn't bring a spoon for me. After that, I just sat by myself against the demountables, reading books and trying to forget being magic. As we grow older... The serious becomes the simulacrum for wisdom and even honor. Impoverished by the honor withheld from us in childhood, we become very willing participants in a kind of spiritual maturation that honors the profound and grave, even at the expense of the simple and beautiful. In fact, the path to wonder is not sophistication or intellect or articulation. It is a clock wound backward. It is foolish excessive. Two girls in a field flicking icing to the clouds. It's when you, as my family would say, play too much. The wonder I've known squeals in delight and trembles in terror. It waits for the clouds to whisper back. Thank you. As you read, I was thinking about the ways in which when a lot of the work we do in this show is about um, helping couples with their relationships, helping us love each other in all of our relationships, but specifically our intimate relationships. And I was thinking about, you know, where that story, how your husband holds that story, you know, it is your story, but in knowing each other, right, we share these childhood stories with each other. And that's such a part of intimacy is not just understanding 
who each other was as children, but being able to play together as adults and reclaim glimpses of that, that I think really is the heart of intimacy is being able to play together. And then how fragile it is, like how these girls walked up and took it, you know, just squashed it. What is the process of reclaiming, how, helping wind the clock backwards? Like, how do we start to go back to those moments and hold them again a bit differently? Okay, so going back to this visit with my nieces and nephews this, this past week, I, I mean, even before I had nieces and nephews, I mean, I, I remember like watching children in church services and even in, I, I used to teach dance, um, ballet and, and, and watching, you know, kids encounter themselves in the mirror and dance and something about paying attention, I think, to the world of children does help us to reclaim a little bit. You see what it means to find a tender spot for the first time, you know, what it means to kind of, like you said, cry out without apology. What You know, babies don't apologize for their tears. They don't, like you said, there's a kind of entitlement, a, sa- a sacred entitlement and the emotions that they feel, even the tantrums that they have, you know. I think I have something to, to learn from that. So it's a lot, for me, it's a lot of paying attention to the young kind of wisdom in my life. There was a time, I mean, particularly in college, where I thought the best kind of knowledge will be found in books, and I buried myself there. I still love reading, but I think there's something to just um, day-to-day attention. So attention to children, but also I'm trying, and I'm, I'm on this journey of like reclaiming the beauty and the mundane and just these ordinary moments that I might not be thinking of these like landmarks that at the end of my life, I'll look back on and think, oh, I learned something. But those moments, especially, this is getting into different territory a bit, but, you know, I live in a disabled body and (laughs) there are things and adventures that I'm, I don't have access to anymore. And those mundane moments and those mundane beauties, I've, I've almost had to rely on as a kind of survival and in that survival, realize, wow, this is rich. This isn't a consolation prize. You know, this is actually rich to be able to stare out of my window and watch, you know, the bushes outside part ways with the wind and come back together and part and come back together. That's a privilege to be able to witness that. And I think there's a formation and a reformation that, that happens with that attention. Mm. Okay, so this is a book of contemplation, of you being contemplative, of you offering your own journey to help us. Can you spend some time talking to us about what it means to be contemplative? I love your celebration of it. I love you writing from that place that is so interior. But what does it mean? What does being contemplative mean to you in your world? Yeah, I think that word interior is a good one. To be really well acquainted with your own inner life with your own interior world. Since I was little, I've always been on on the shy side. And this isn't always true, but I think, you know, quieter children tend to have a kind of rich interior world because that's often where they're living a lot of times. And so I feel like I've had a bit of a heart of a contemplative since I was young, really. And it was later on in life that I had to find a way to bridge that into and attention to the exterior world. I had found refuge in a lot of kind of old, like ancient contemplatives who can be reduced to just 
the work of the inner life. You know, at, at least that's how we translate them to people, kind of dilute them to other people. And so I kind of mistakenly like took refuge in there and, and, and it led to a very isolated, a very intellectual kind of spirituality. And it really after college is when I had to do some real searching to think like, who are you trying to belong to? And where are you trying to fit with this kind of like solitude and silence and that being the core pillars of your spirituality and what's missing? And there was a huge gap in terms of a contemplative life that was actually connected to the world around us. I think if it's not that, how contemplative is it? It's not true contemplation. It's probably something closer to like self-absorption, you know, self-obsession. And so after college began this journey of bridging the, the inner life work that felt natural to me with, you know, looking outside of myself and thinking about what does it mean to be human in the exterior world, to be a part of the cosmos, to to grieve and to love and to lose and to delight and to do justice and to free, you know, in that bridge, I found a contemplative life that I try to write out of. But if there's one word, I, I say this, if there's one word that I think could like sum up my own contemplative journey, it would be attention, that attention to one's inner life and the exterior circumstances and the needs of the world around us. That was your family motto, basically, pay attention. Your dad used to quiz you, right? Yes, <laughs> yes. I don't think I, I don't think my dad would know that he's a contemplative <laughs> model for me. He, he'd be like, what's a contemplative? But it's absolutely true. Like that, that, that aspect was, I mean, he was, he was constantly trying to get us to have a level of awareness. And I, I you're right. I write about this, you know, what, what was the waitress's name? Where's home from here? And was drawing, he, I think he saw in me a little girl who was very much so withdrawn inside of herself. And I feel like he did what he could to kind of pull me, you know, to create bridges really for me to the world around me. Say, open your eyes, you know, look around. (laughs) And that did, right? That bridging helped you because that is like attention. Attention is attention to what's stirring inside of me, attention to what's happening in the space between us, attention to what's happening in the world around us. I love that connection you're making between being contemplative and attention. I also, I mean, I spent my childhood like in my room with my headphones, well, childhood and adolescence, you know, in my room, headphones on, writing in journals, you know, writing poetry. I would go in college to this feminist spiritual bookstore and just get lost, you know, for hours. And so reading about your journey, it was both affirming and confronting because I know that one of my growing edges right now is how do I hold contemplation as mine. I know that there's like these tracks, like when I am interior, it's like I'm wherever I'm daydreaming, fantasizing, wherever I go inside my mind. And right there next to me is how am I going to translate this into a piece of content, into a piece of writing, into a podcast episode. And there's something about, and I was hesitant to talk to you about this because I feel like it's a me thing, but I don't think it's just a me thing. I think there's so much right now happening with social media where we take these moments and while we're having the moment, we're figuring out how we're going to curate the moment and present the moment. So I don't know. I would love to hear, is that a struggle that you have? Is there guidance? Is there a place you have? Where, how do you sit with that tension of contemplation and production or contemplation and translation and for whom and when and all of that? Yes. 
that's such an honest question. I love it because, you know, people who are interested in like kind of a contemplative life tend to want to appear a certain way. They want to seem disinterested in, you know, cr- creating content, but it is a, a, a creative act. And I don't think there's anything to be ashamed of in that, but it's, it's difficult. And actually, even before I began Black Liturgies, the project on Instagram that, that I run, even before I started that, I was working with uh, students at Cornell doing kind of spiritual formation work. And I really noticed then that I would have the thoughts or I would read something or I would feel a kind of inspiration. And I would immediately think, how am I going to teach someone about this? You know, And I think that's definitely bled into the Black Liturgies project a little bit where I'm like, oh, could this be, you know, tomorrow's meditation or, and to resist that, I have started to write things that I know that no one else is going to ever see to kind of cultivate that practice of the hidden things, you know, and, and, and hiddenness not always being bad, that there can be a kind of beauty and protection and the hiddenness of some of our creative works. And do I believe that my art or do I believe that my writing is just as valuable if it's only held by me? Is it still worth something if I'm the only one that sees it? I'd like to believe the answer is yes, that there's still you know deep value in it. The value doesn't always have to come in the translation. It can come in the creation. And so I'm, I'm pretty good about this now. You know, a few times a week, I know that there are things that I've written that no eyes will ever see, hopefully. And it's created a lot of tension in me, but also a kind of honoring to the art in a, in a way to say, I'm not just using you. You're not just a transaction to me, my writing, as tempting as that is. of like, what can you get me? What can this do for me? As opposed to kind of going back to what was I thinking as a child? As a child, when I was writing, I was just glad to write. I was thinking, wow. I know a word, you know, I never used that word that way. And kind of like taking it back there as a form of honoring what I'm creating and what is being created in me. But I think you're absolutely right. That's a a tension that I don't think as many people are honest about of like living a moment and living a kind of revelation, but simultaneously as it's happening, you're thinking, how am I going to use this? We were meant for more than that. You're, you know, our, Our day-to-day existence wasn't just meant to be used, of course, but it's tempting. It's tempting. And there is something about, I mean, it goes back to what you were saying before about the attention being a bridge. And there is something about contemplation and connection that go hand in hand, right? It is in my contemplation that I know me more deeply. And then I have, I I am better footed to create intimacy with you. It's like the contemplation serves the connection as well. Yes. You know, you write in the book around, uh, you write obviously as as you would from the intersection of all of your identities and you're clear that spirituality and liberation and race, they're all inextricable. So what do you want readers who are white, especially to keep in mind as they engage with your, with your work and perhaps also listeners who are white? How do I, we white readers and listeners connect to you while honoring and respecting you know, there are elements of this that are not by, for, or about us. Yeah. Thank you for that question. I, it's, it's so hard, isn't it? Because, you know, literature, it's, it's job really. It's, it's responsible for, you know, creating 
if not the reality, but at the very least, the illusion of I see myself in you, or I, I connect, I, or I relate, or I resonate. It's yeah, either the reality or the illusion of um, we're in this together. And I, I think that's you know a beautiful, necessary thing. I say this about the black liturgies a lot. I get I get a lot of DMs from very like well-meaning white people saying, what do I, what do I do with this space? It's called black liturgies. Am I allowed to be here? You know, am I, and I always say, if you can trust yourself to be, I say this about black liturgies, I think it it can apply to this here flesh as well. But if you can trust yourself to be present in the space of say black liturgies without necessarily centering yourself, I think it can be tremendously healing to witness, to hear words or prayers to the divine or or um, dreams uttered by a Black woman. I, I like to think that there is some degree of kind of healing that happens in that witnessing. There are times, of course, when something I write is going to absolutely connect. And I don't really feel a lot of responsibility to try to get people to say, no, no, that's not for you. That's not yours. You know, when I'm writing about anxiety, it's not you. I don't really feel that protective over it to that point. Cause I think that there are different, like you said, different spheres of my identity that I'm writing out of that I'd like to believe that a white person could very well meet themselves in. But again, it's that distinction of, are you always centering yourself on the page? Are you, are you centering yourself so much that you're forgetting my own face and that my experience with anxiety as a Black woman is probably distinct from your experience with anxiety as a white woman, for example? And I think if pe- when people do that work, you know, if they can trust themselves to do that work, I think a lot of good can, can come out of the, the engagement traveling into the stories, at least I hope. Oh, my gosh. Well, and it is, it is a muscle that p- people who are white need opportunities to practice and flex is participating without centering. Mm-hmm. Okay, I want to talk about calling, the, the chapter called Calling. As the mom of two emerging adults, like I read with particular interest when you wrote, we spend a jarring amount of time asking young people what jobs they might have one day compared to how often we ask them what is true of them right now? What is it that you love about the question, what is true of you right now? You know, I love it because so much of how we experience each other or how I'm perceived, I don't have access to with like any kind of precision of language, at least. And people aren't always telling you, like, this is how I'm perceiving you. And so there's an uncertainty there. And in that, there's so much, I think, not everyone, but I, I think there are many of us who part of a feeling of loneliness stems from this disconnect between who we know ourselves to be and how we're being perceived or who other people perceive us to be. And we don't always have the tools or the path to kind of speak to that. So some people are very open, of course, and this is who I am. But I think even outgoing people are rarely able to just articulate. It's not normal, you know, or re- rarely able to articulate. This is who I'm becoming. This is who I am. This is what's true of me. If I had someone asking me that question, I would have made a lot of different decisions about my future, actually. Because at the heart of the what do you want to be when you grow up question is really a concern, a credible concern for, you know, a lot of our futures and, you know, is it going to be okay? (laughs) Are you going to be okay? Do you have hope? Do you have a a dream? You know, 
But the question of who are you, what's true of you today, actually can position us to think more honestly about the future, more honestly about how I want to move in the world, how I want to relate to other people in the world. And it, I always ask my friends, um, not always, but regularly, we, we ask, like, what's something we're, I'm getting wrong about you in this season? Oh. Or when I first meet people, sometimes I ask. I, I have a lot of questions that I, like, store up because I'm a very nervous person. <laughs> so, but, but I'll often ask, like, what's something you wish people knew about you that they really just don't intuit often? It allows you to travel into places that people might otherwise be hesitant to go either in themselves or allow other people to go. But it also gives people a lot of latitude for what they want to share. Yes. It is a question that is both intimate and really permission giving. You go on to say, ask me what I want to be, but not before you ask me who I want to be. Ask me who I want to be, but not before you ask me the searing question of who I am. You're separating the role from the aspiration and then the aspiration from the self-awareness. You're like teasing apart, right? Like there, I think there is, like, as you said, there's legitimacy in the question of what do you want to be when you grow up or what's the career, but it's, but the career isn't this, isn't the self. And there's something so much more interesting about right, a question about who are you? I was really fascinated by your exploration of place. You wrote, it took time for me to accept that where we are has as much to do with our formation as with whom and doing what. Place is the one thing that always is. We are always someplace. I have been without people, but never without place. So can you tell us more about what you call, quote, a mysterious entanglement between our welfare and our capacity to ground ourselves in a particular place? Yes. Place. It was the hardest chapter to write. Oh, maybe rage was hardest, but rage was probably harder than place. But place was it was very difficult because something about it is so imprecise, so mysterious about how we're formed that it was kind of hard sometimes to like. I had to do a lot of translation of images as opposed to ideas. You know, <laughs> like I had to like go to places and describe them and let people's imagination do the work for them in terms of what that means. But place does form us. So I come from Pittsburgh, born and mostly raised in Pittsburgh, a city with a very particular history. I mean, it's a steel town, working class, kind of blue collar. That's formed me. It's also very black and white in terms of how it views race. Uh, there's not much space given to other other racial identities. Um, there's a gruffness, uh, kind of a solidness, a toughness uh, that I think comes from the place that formed me. So that's just an example of a city. But then I have the, the intricacies of my home, you know, the door that doesn't completely shut, the door that only shuts when you slam it. What does that mean for your formation. How is it, you know, right now I live in a house, a very old house. It was built in 1820. And there's a room in my basement that literally just has a bunch of rubble. It's like maybe shin deep rubble. We don't know. We have no idea where this room of rubble really comes from. All I know is that that's below me. And there are days where it is just in my head. It's freaky to know what's 
beneath, what's hidden in the cracks, what we found a snake down there once, but you know, is it safe? What, where, where is it from? What, what did it used to be? Is the house crumbling? There are all these questions. And I wrote this letter as a part of my next book, just thinking about that and processing what does it mean to live above such a mystery, such a mysterious kind of act of deconstruction that I have no real access to the why or the or the history or the what's beneath it, you know, what does it mean to live above that and and walk in this, you know, I have a very bright, brightly lit natural sunlight, you know, home, but underneath there's this this hiddenness, this dark mystery. And again, that's a that's a bit of a poetic way of looking at it, but you know, I don't think it makes it any less true. I don't think it makes the question any less true of what does that do to you? What does that make me used to? I really do. I want readers and listeners to, to spend time working on that question of place. I think that we, I think maybe similar to like how we talk about and think about children, I think we sort of diminish the power of place. Like we act like it shouldn't matter. But I've, I've recently been spending much more time talking about like when couples need to have difficult conversations, like setting the context, like the context for the conversation, like what's around you, right? What are you smelling? What are you hearing? Where are your bodies? What are you wearing? What is draped over you? Like all of that place, that location matters and it creates either more safety or more threat, you know, more ease or more tension. And that matters. And that it matters not because we're silly, but it matters because it is us locating ourselves. It was that part of the book where you talked about how it's no coincidence then that therapists, especially therapists who are working with anxiety and with trauma, like that grounding techniques are about like locating, orienting to yourself. What's something you smell? What's something you hear? Like there is this powerful connection between what's around me and what's in me that you want us to be mindful of. Yeah. And to locate yourself in a space is often, if not always, to locate yourself in your body again. Like it, it requires that sensory kind of awareness that so many of us are numb to or, or are trying to re-embrace. So yeah, whenever I have to pay attention to like how I'm sitting around a table when I'm talking to my husband, I also am paying attention to the body, the bodies that are on either side of the table and what they need, um, which is kind of embodied compassion. It made me think also about like this edge that we walk where there's then there, we can slip into rumination and obsession about our space. Like, you know, all like the fact that there are entire, you know, magazines and sites that are devoted to like making our space look a certain way, our pantry and our bookshelf, like there's all this kind of obsession and perfection about how our space looks. And so how do we, what do you think about how do we like revere the space because it matters while not obsessing or becoming perfectionistic about the space. It's also about how it feels and how it works rather than just what it looks like, right? How do we how do we hold on to both? Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking, how can I resist some of the judgment toward the rubble room in my basement? Can I have a relationship with place that isn't grounded first in like a assessment of it? You know, can it just be a taking in of facts, a taking in of knowledge, a wonder even, as opposed to first saying, is this good? Is it right? Is it beautiful? Which is the heart of mindfulness, right? Which is just noticing without judgment. So you are, yeah, we get to do, we can do that. There's an invitation there to do that of our space, the space, to notice it, attend to it without judging it. Okay. Well, let's just do this. Um, But the chapter about body, your chapter called body. 
um, returning to the, to the notion about trauma and how it creates a disconnect from our body. And you wrote, if you feel unsafe or rejected in your body for long enough, after a while, it becomes understandable that you might be inclined to forsake it. And you pose the questions, in a world desperate to make an enemy of my body, how will I befriend it? Will I put my faith in it? That the gloried physical will resurrect the power, pleasure, and protection and presence I was meant for. What has helped you and continues to help you befriend your body? The first thing that comes to mind is my friends. I have a small but committed circle of friends who are just completely disinterested in my uh, ability to survive on very little. They're not impressed. They're not, they're just, they're, they're, they're over it. They're like, we don't care who you spoke to today. Did you eat? You know? Um, and I think having those kinds of people in my orbit who are kind of fierce in their protection of my body, even in seasons when I'm not, where I, I, I kind of, can slip back into viewing my body as expendable for whatever reason. To have people kind of in my corner who refuse to do that has been very helpful. There have been seasons in my life where I've not been so fortunate and I found myself in circles of people who are very willing to allow me to just destroy my body to the ends of a greater community, you know, for the success or the growth of a community. You find this a lot in Christian evangelical spaces, specifically a lot of utilitarian view of the body and how we can use young people. And um, there were seasons where I definitely found myself in those spaces and kind of having a different home or a different core now has been invaluable. But also I think part of the kind of reclamation of my body has come just by pure necessity. When I got sick, there were just ways that I learned to neglect my body that I just couldn't afford to, like literally couldn't afford to do anymore. You know, I, I needed um, to find a new way. And so I think the disabled community and the friends that I've made who consider themselves a part of that community have been invaluable in kind of retraining me toward kind of day-to-day where the body isn't secondary, you know, to contemplation, to some mental exercise. The body is like critical and they're very good at reminding me that I have permission for pleasure, for delight, for for rest and for all of that. So I look a lot to, to the disabled community as well. I say this a lot. I'm like, yeah, there's a lot of social media influencers and honestly really wise people who are talking about embodiment, but the the people with the real power to help us get free from kind of the disembodiment that capitalism imposes, I think is the disabled community, the chronically ill community. Those are the people that we need to be looking toward to be liberated from because a lot of them have already found some manner of liberation and at no small cost. Yes, that is where we can do our most powerful learning about right what it is to be a body. 
Oh, Cole, I so enjoyed getting to spend this time with you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Can you, before we close, I know that if there's anybody listening who does not yet have their copy of This Here Flesh, who is not yet following Black Liturgies, this is your first order of business is to do that. But what else? What? How can people get to know you and the work that you're doing? You can stay updated on speaking and anything else that I'm doing pretty much through my website, colearthurreilly.com, where you can sign up for a newsletter and receive updates that way. And yeah, this year flush in, in Black liturgies, I offer them to you. Thank you, Cole, so much. Thank you. Thanks for trusting me in your space. Thank you, Cole, for joining me here on the show. Cole's book really struck a chord with me, as it has done for so many readers around the world. And I really hope that you will pick up a copy if you want to experience more of Cole's poeticism and her storytelling, and if you want to awaken that contemplative part of yourself. You're going to find a link to This Here Flesh, as well as the Black Liturgies page, and more ways to connect with Cole in the show notes. Until next time, take good care of yourself. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love.